Open your Bibles, if you will, and follow as I read from um, a book that is inerrant, infallible, inspired. It's the very mind of God, as black words on a white page. And thus, we uh, need to be very cautious as to how we, as to how we listen to it. Now, uh, I, I said this last week. Let me say it again. Let me, let me ask you to shift gears as we read this. Shift gears mentally. Because we're, we're about to read a parable, and a parable or parables are a unique genre of literature. And this particular parable is a doozy. I mean, it's a doozy in the sense that it's just crammed with truth. So much so that we won't be able to cover everything in it. We'll just be able to snatch certain things out of it. But it's far more in there than we have time to cover this morning. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 24... Um, and we'll skip to 36 in a minute, but you follow at verse 24. Here it is. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it, does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Gang, there are a couple of similarities in... um, in this parable and the one that we looked at last week, the parable of the four soils. And, and I thought they were at least worth noting and pointing out to you. So let me just draw your attention to a couple of the similarities. First of all, you'll notice that uh, in verse 36, 
that the disciples um, are confused again. They come to him and saying, come to him and say, could you explain the parable? Just like in the, the previous parable last week, they didn't understand it. And so here, they come to him and they say, would you, um, it's, would you explain it to us? Because we don't quite understand what, what, what you meant and all that. But I want you to notice that it says that only the 12 get the explanation. An explanation which is very important to Jesus Christ because... Um, so much of the Christian experience, so much of the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, is, is thinking right and um, replacing faulty thinking with right thinking. You know, you're never going to live like a Christian until you think like one. And so Jesus goes out of his way to take his people aside and explain, explain what he meant. The, the others who, were, who had heard the parable, um, they are sent home, free to interpret or misinterpret any way they like. And, and I can sure tell you that um, if you ever try to study this parable, you're going to find there's a lot of misinterpretations that are out there. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and I'll give you an example, uh, just, just of one, because one of the common mistakes that you read about, and you read about it in commentaries, um, <clears throat> it goes something like this. That the picture that is in this parable is the, is the picture of the church. And that the church will always have in it, inside it, believers and non-believers. And so there's no such thing as a pure church. And, by the way, um, don't ever do anything called church discipline or excommunication because... Of what it says there in verse 28 about plucking them out and you might pluck out the wrong ones, etc., etc. Now, ladies and gentlemen, both of those things may be true. You can figure that out yourself. I'm just here to tell you that neither of those things are taught in this parable. That's not what this parable is about. This parable is not about the church. Um, How do I know that? Well, because as I said earlier, this is the second of two parables that Jesus interprets for us himself. And guys, um, we we don't need to speculate as to the meaning of some of the metaphors that are contained in this parable. Look at verses 37 through 39. In those three verses, he gives us seven interpretive keys about this parable. And look at verse 38, where he says, the field is the world. (laughs) Would you like it any clearer? The field is not the church. The field is the world. He says that. Pretty simple, pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Can't miss it. Shouldn't miss it, but... It's been missed. And not only that, the field, which is the world, belongs to the man. It says that in verse 24, compared a man to, who sowed good seed in his field. And uh, what was that field? It's the world. And it even goes on to tell us who the man is who sows the good seed. We're told that in verse 37. 
um, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Which, by the way, is Jesus's favorite um, self-designation. When he's calling himself something, the thing that he uses the most frequently is that term, the, the son of man. Now, guys, at least we've got that much settled, I hope. But this is not about the church, it's about the world, and it's about the Son of Man who sows seeds into it. And an enemy that also does some sowing himself. So, what I want to do um, with our time together is look at about just three ideas that are mentioned in the parable, um, along with numerous others that we can't, don't have time to cover, but... The the three that I want to take a look at is this. Number one, the nature of evil. Number two, the role of the servants. And number three, the man who owns the field. Those are my my three headings. The nature of evil, the, um, the role of the servants, and the man. The man who owns the field. You know, in my first point, that is the nature of evil. One of the first things that you see is that the devil, the enemy, is a squatter. That is, um, he comes and he does things to land that he doesn't himself own. And portrayed in here is something about how he operates. Um, if I were to call it his MO, do you know what that means? His modus operandi? You, you get a glimpse of how evil or the devil operates. Five things that I want you to see. First of all, we're told that he comes while the servants are sleeping. He comes at night. He does his best work under the cover of darkness. Now, guys, the the point there is not uh, a a time frame on a clock. The point is that he does things stealthily. Um, He's tricky. He's cunning. He's deceptive. And we've been being told that ever since Genesis 3. But I'm not sure that that we've yet gotten it. Gang, one of the reasons that we get ourselves into such messes on occasion is that we've been tricked. We've been hoodwinked. So just knowing that little much, that is, that that he comes under the cover of darkness, that ought to change us. It ought to change the way that we pray, for instance. <clears throat> you know that, that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Well, maybe we ought to pray that some more. Because, folks, um, the, the thing that he loves to do is to deceive you and trick you into making decisions um, that will lead you into some kind of difficulty. But secondly, his method is primarily through imitation. That is, there's two sowings in this parable. 
And there's one sowing of good seed. And then under the cover of darkness, there's another sowing. And um, that second sowing, in a lot of ways, resembles the first one. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is a Christ, and then there is an Antichrist. There is a prophet, and then there is a false prophet. There's a real, and then there's a, a, a synthetic. It's all a part of the deception, guys. <clears throat> you know, um, when, when Susie and I graduated from seminary, we, we moved to Ocala, Florida, which I've told you a ton of times, but uh, we moved down there to start a church, and um, my first office that they rented me there in Ocala was a little room on the second floor of a building that was right above a liquor lounge, the ABC Liquor Lounge, where it was where my office was. And you could smell the liquor from my office. And you could hear the jukebox from my office. And my office was furnished by parts, <clears throat> at least the desk, was bought by SNH green stamps or with SNH green stamps. Now, if you don't know what SNH green stamps are, that's because you're under 40. But 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 this is SNH green stamps. And and back in the day, housewives and, and their husbands would shop at the grocery stores and, and at gas stations, and they would give you a stamp for every dollar that you that you bought. Um, and you would collect these stamps and you would put them into these little books, and if you've got a whole lot of books. You could buy stuff, you know, kitchen utensils and jewelry and watches and and even a desk. Because my first desk in my first office over the liquor lounge was bought with S&H green stamps. And it looked like a desk. It functioned like a desk. It was it was very functional. And and uh, one day I'm in my new office and and I decided to to move, to rearrange the furniture in my office. And so you know I, I went to the side of the the desk to pick it up you know by the lip of of the desk, and the lip snapped off. And and I bent over and I looked in the side where I, the, the lip snapped off. And I don't know about the whole desk, but the top of my desk was made out of compressed newsprint. You could see the, the colors of the Sunday comics in the side of my desk. It looked like a desk. I mean, it, 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 it looked like wood. It just wasn't. It was a phony. It was a synthetic. It was an imitation. You think that other woman can make you happy, don't you? It's a phony. And if you head off in that direction, you will regret it for the rest of your life. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's how evil works. It primarily works in the cover of darkness and uses imitations. Thirdly, evil likes to ruin 
the good, the normal, the, the natural. And you can see the good and the normal and the natural in the, in the sowing of the good seed, the wheat. <clears throat> um, what Satan does, however, is that he does things to ruin that which is the good and the natural and the, and the normal. He takes the, the sexual and he turns it into the homosexual. You know, ladies and gentlemen, he can take just about anything and ruin it. Anything good. He takes love and he turns it into romance. He takes worship and he turns it into entertainment. Love is good. Worship is good. Sex is good. But he has ruined them all. He, 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 he likes to ruin the good and the normal and the natural. Just like you see him doing here. Fourthly, in terms of the nature of evil, it, it takes a while to spot it. Because in the early stages, it, it can appear just like the good. It can, it can be harmless and look just like the, the real thing. I mean... Weeds, early on, looks just like wheat. And ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't listened to me, I hope you'll listen to me just at this point. That ought to change a lot of things that we do. It ought to, it ought to change the way that we choose a mate, for instance. Because you see, in the beginning, oh, it can look just like, the, like a good thing. Or maybe even how we elect elders. Because in the beginning, oh, yeah. Or, or, or just making any kind of financial decisions. In the beginning. You know, early on in our marriage, Susie and I had to buy a washing machine. And, and that was a big deal back then. I mean, actually, it's still a big deal now, but... But um, we were in seminary, and we were having to buy our first washing machine. And we went out to this, these places to look at washing machines, and, and I never will forget it, uh, this, this salesman just doing his job, a nice fellow. Um, he was saying, well, the price of this one is a really a good one, and boy, it does this, all this. I mean, it really does good. And, and, um, and uh, you know, because, because, because you're nice people, if you'll buy it today... I'll give you another $50 off or $100, whatever it was. If you'll buy it today. You know, me and Susie, you know, we'd been, no, I don't know. Somehow, we extracted ourselves from that situation. And we went home, talked about it. By the way, ended up with something better and cheaper. But we, we came to this conclusion. Anytime... I've got to make a decision other than life or death, and I have to give you an answer right now. 
Then the answer is no. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, bad can be good, but only for a little while. And good can be bad, but only for a little while. So, you know, guys, that ought to slow us down in, in, in making decisions. We, um, we ought not be so high-minded about our intuition. Or, I can handle this one. You know, Joshua made that mistake. Joshua in, in chapter 9. And he got fooled by the Gibeonites and paid for it for the rest of his life. Because of ignoring this principle taught in this parable about evil, which is simply this. It takes time to spot it. Fifthly, um, according to this parable, evil will not gradually wane and then disappear But it's going to grow and expand side by side. It's going to live in close proximity to the good all the way to the end. If you've ever asked a question about um, is the world getting better or is the world getting worse? Well, here's the answer for you, ladies and gentlemen. Right out of this parable, the world is getting better every day. And... It's getting worse every day because there's two sowings. There's two growths. There's two increasing manifestations. Evil is getting eviler and good is getting gooder. You know, one of the designs of this parable, I think, is to to correct the extravagant expectations in which many Christians indulge as to the effect of preaching the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, the purest of preaching cannot prevent this. Now, before we leave this first point, I want to say one other thing. Because it's, it's not so much about the nature of evil, it's really about the whole subject. But um, several months ago, I found this book, somebody recommended it. And I read it, it's called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. It's by a non-Christian, Andrew Delbanco. He is a professor at Columbia University in New York, and uh, he teaches humanities there. He's kind of a social analyst. And um, the thesis of this book is, is really quite poignant, at least, at least I think it is. The, the thesis of this book, what he's, what he's saying in this book, and by the way, let me underscore again, this man is a non-Christian. He's saying that because modern people have dismissed dismissed the existence of a personal devil, because we've done that, a great chasm has, um, has, has opened in our, between our, the, the fact that we're staring at so much evil on an ongoing basis, on one hand, and on the other hand, the, the loss of any intellectual resources to cope with it. 
or, or even a vocabulary to describe it. You see, we sense something that is, that is very evil in our culture. But our culture no longer gives this a vocabulary to express it. The unbelieving world has dismissed the whole Christian lexicon, which included words like sin and evil and the devil. But according to our culture, those things don't exist anymore. And so we're left with evil staring us in the face all around us like a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Or an elementary school in Connecticut. We're, we're staring face to face with that stuff. And we have no way, no categories to even describe it. Because our culture has told us. This don't exist anymore. You want an explanation for it? It's in this parable. And I want to underscore the fact that Jesus is teaching this. And out of his lips comes the name, the devil. So you're too sophisticated to believe in that anymore? Well, you're going to have trouble understanding this parable. That's the, that's the first thing that I want you to see in the parable. But the second major stream of thought in this parable has to do with this whole zeal of the, of the servants wanting to pluck up. It's in verse 28. They want, to, they want to get in there and pluck out all the weeds. But first of all, Jesus makes no attempt at explaining who those servants are. He doesn't even tell us who they are. Um, they, they appear to be people who, um, who are zealous for the, for the Lord's honor. Um, it shocks them that there is so much evil. How did this happen? They seem to be somewhat concerned about whether the weeds will hurt the wheat. And Jesus assures them it's, it, it, it's not going to get hurt. You know, but their, their, their zeal is misguided. But I don't know that I'm the only one in this room, but their zeal certainly is refreshing. Where is zeal gone? Huh? Where is zeal for the Lord's honor gone? You know, another story from my past, but when, when we were in seminary, we were youth directors. I was a youth director in a little church in Louisville, Mississippi, and and we took these kids to um, to this uh, this this conference up in uh, up in look um, um, Covenant College. We went. We took this bus and we drove these kids up there. And we uh, and the speaker was a guy by the name of Al Martin, Big Al. I loved Al Martin. I think he's dead now, but uh, he he was a he was quite a preacher. And one night after all the services, we were staying in the halls, just a bunch of counselors types like me and. And he was out in the hall and he was talking to us. And I don't even know how this came up, but I remember him saying this. 
And I've quoted it a dozen times. He said, I'd rather put a bridle in the mouth of a wild stallion than try to pump life into a dead slug. Me too. Problem is, where did all the wild stallions go? Where are they gone? Why so little zeal about the Lord's honor? Why, why so little outrage over evil? Because we're too busy? You got to get to the next soccer game? Is that it? Jesus answers their question with this emphatic no. His, the, the no is so clear and so direct, it's, it's, uh, it, it's unmistakable. I can tell you this, whenever in church history that you've seen a clash between the weeds and the wheat, normally it's not the wheats trying to uproot the weeds, but it's the weeds trying to uproot the wheat. You see, one of the reasons that Jesus says, no, you, you can't do this is because, very honestly, I think we have, we have too high a view of ourselves and we think, you know, we can spot those hypocrites. Ladies and gentlemen, we're hypocrites too. We can't read hearts. What we think is a non-Christian just may be a sick Christian. You see, guys, it's, it's not that the weeds will never be plucked out. It's just not now, and it's not by us. There is to be a final separation. But it's going to be a sign to the, to the reapers. And those reapers, they are excellent botanists. Um, in the end, everybody in this field, which is the world, you remember? Not the church, it's the world. Everybody in this field is going to end up in one of two places. Going to end up in the barn. It's going to end up in the furnace. But that's a prerogative that, that the owner of the field keeps for himself. That's not my job. Man, it isn't yours. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see what I think is the major component of this parable. And it has to do with the man. The man who owns the field. And that field is the world. It has to do with the one who owns that. Ladies and gentlemen, the hero of this parable 
is the one who owns the field. But you know what? The hero of all the parables is the same one. In fact, he's the hero of this entire book. The reapers, they, they serve him. His servants, they love him. And his enemies, they're all going to be destroyed by him. In a fiery furnace, we're told in verse 42. And ladies and gentlemen, whatever or however you might want to define that thing, that fiery furnace thing, however you may want to conceive of it, it does at least this. It points to some kind of doom that is so intolerable that the man, the Son of Man, left his home in glory and tasted of the bitterness of a God-separated death So that he might deliver his people from ever tasting anything close that, to, that resembles that kind of anguish. The man comes so that the children of the kingdom will arrive safely in the barn. You see, guys, the, the man has children, we're told in verse 38. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The man has children. He sowed them. He owns them. They belong to him. And he wouldn't dream of letting any of them wind up in that furnace. So to prevent that, he came. And he lived the life that, that his children were supposed to live. And then he died the death that his children should have died. He came to be their substitute. He came to be their substitute in life and in death. And ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that they will all, every last one of them, they will all end up in his barn. Safe, forgiven, loved. Guys, um, He came to save his children. Not to make them savable. Gosh, you can, you can see why the servants love him so, can't you? You can see why they're so jealous for his honor. 
And to that great news, let me add this. Weeds can be changed to wheat by him. There's still time for the weeds to become wheat. So that means that the job of his servants is not to do any plucking up. No, 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 no. Their job is to keep on sowing and to keep on watering and to keep on fertilizing. Understanding that the field belongs to the man. And he's not done yet. Ladies and gentlemen, as a servant of this man, I've been commissioned to tell you, there is still time to escape the furnace. How, you ask? Well, here's how. By laying down all of those foolish attempts to save yourself. By your goodness. By your supposed goodness. You aren't good. At least you're not good enough. None of us are. The only good one is the man. The man Christ Jesus. And you need him. You need him as your Savior and your Lord. I invite you to trust him now. Our Father, I I do pray that this parable has been handled faithfully. And where I have erred, would you stop up the ears of those who listen? But where I have rightly and accurately handled it, I pray that you will use it for the benefit of your people, that they might be able to leave here further instructed, not by the preacher, but by the word. So to the degree, O God, that I have handled your word aright, your people have heard from you. O Holy Ghost of God, allow us to hear from you. And Lord, if you brought people here who have not yet met the Savior, would you would you cause them to see? Would you would you cause them not to be to misunderstand this delay or to take advantage of the uh, of the delay? Might they come to see that the need is urgent and the Savior awaits. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.